been a pastor for 35 years uh, with Village Missions and um, specifically at one church for for many of those years. And uh, what was really cool was how many people came up to me and said, your church, and of course, when they meant they're saying mine, not that I own it, but, you know, I'm part of us. And uh, you guys have been so amazing to the hills. They they have spoken with us. They've shared with us how your church has accepted them and loved on them. And it was uh, reflected again yesterday in the service from many of you that served for a bunch of hours um, yesterday and during the week, just getting things ready and taking care of the family. So thank you for being uh, the active hand of God in serving and caring for people who, quite honestly, it was joyful for me because they just didn't, they felt like, oh, we don't know you guys. Why would you do this for us? <laughs> I'm like, but we know Jesus. And so we love and care because of him, right? Um, I don't know if you guys are, uh, it's one of those goofy things that, uh, you ever get like just feeling good about something you did for the Lord? You're like, man, that worked really, really well. I want to reproduce that. I don't know if you're aware of this, but there's a whole industry selling programs on how to do church well. I mean, people make money out of that. In fact, it's, it's such a temptation that if, if you as a pastor are in a church and they see a, a, some kind of marginal growth, people start coming to you and say, what did you do? And I think uh, my buddy Dick Olson, he was uh, encouraging me about a year ago uh, when we were coming up onto our, our first anniversary. He said, man, Sh- Shane, thanks for doing nothing. <laughs> and he meant that as a genuine encouragement. Thanks for not coming in here and trying to change things or, or put the perfect plan in place or, or make a program that makes us be- Because it's not about a program, is it? It's not about a, a specific pattern of things. I mean, it would be nice if Christianity was just about getting the program right, wouldn't it? If our devotion, if our faith in God, if, if our success in ministry was just about uh, having a good plan, if we could just repeat what somebody else has done over and over and over again and have it work every time, that would be awesome. I mean, we'd all try and be like Jerry or Dennis, right? Let's just be honest. We, that kind of stuff's exciting. We love to hear the testimonies. I would love to have people respond to me every time that I, or not every time, I know that doesn't happen for Jerry, but many times. I would love to see airport experiences when you're stuck on layovers for hours be about Jesus. I would love to see a moment in my traffic experiences when I'm able to go, this is for the Lord, praise Jesus. I'm going to pull that guy over and talk to him about the Lord. But the reality is, is that our walk with God is not about reproducing a perfect program or coming up with a plan that we do over and over and over again. Although I will say this, the disciplines are important. It's important that we exercise our faith and that we engage the Lord. But how often is it that we come into an experience and we're like, man, that worked well. And then when we go and we try and repeat it, it feels like it falls on its face. I suppose that works after Valentine's Day, right? Because if you get her the same flowers you did last year, she really appreciates it. If you've been married for 25 years and you look at your bride and you say, man, sweetie, I love you so much. Are we doing anything for Valentine's Day this year? You guys, well, I'll let you guys figure out if that works or not. That's on your own. 
But when we think about patterns and we think about prescribed religious experiences, the disciples were looking for that. They, they, they came out of a religious culture that had lots of organized structure. Do this and do that and do this for seven days. And here's the sacrifice and here's the practice. And this is the festival. They had all these rules. They had the law and it was God's and he gave it to them and it was on purpose. And so the disciples are coming to Jesus and they're, they're wrestling with the same kind of idea. They want to produce uh, the religious stuff that, that, that does this right. And I, I love this interaction. Now, part of what we're going to do in the first part here is you're going to have to deal with my brain a little bit because I can only imagine that some of this, even though it's not all in the text, um, it, it just paints into, I think, some of the, the, their response to God and their, their bewilderment of why what they've done in the past isn't working. I titled the sermon today, It Worked Last Time. Because I just, as I was going through this, I thought, that's what I would say to the Lord sometimes. But God, that worked last time. Why isn't it working today? Follow with me in Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 14 this morning. Mark 9, verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able to. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? That's always an encouraging response from your leader. Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one, for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that the crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said he was dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So the first thing that we see, we need to remember is uh, where are Jesus in the, where are Jesus, where's Jesus coming back from? He's coming back with James, uh, Peter, James, and John from the Transfiguration Mountain. So here we have Peter, James, and John coming back with Jesus from this incredible thing. And, and again, this is just in my own head, I'm thinking to myself, I, I can't imagine that they're not walking down the hill going, that's right. We are with the boss. And we just got to do this. And they see the other disciples arguing with the scribes. Can you imagine for just a second? I wonder if in their heads they went, those goofy, why can't they get this? 
I mean, we're with, the, we're with Jesus, and they're down here arguing and making a mess of this. The only thing I think would have been better is if Jesus would have turned to Peter and said, hey, Peter, why don't you try and take care of this? I think that would have been the only thing that would have, for me, would have, would have made me think, man, those guys. That's what I would have thought. Because the problem is, I can't tell you how many times I think I've been in that role where, where we're doing something, and I'm watching something else go wrong, and I'm thinking to myself, man, why can't they get that? Why is it so hard for them to understand this? This works. And then shortly after, normally I'm in an argument with somebody about something that's probably pointless. So here the scribes are and his disciples, and, and they're, they're trying to do ministry, and it's failing. And have you ever felt like that in your life? You're trying to do something to honor the Lord, and it's just colliding with culture and, and life around you, and you just feel like you're failing? Okay, this is that time where we just quietly nod. Don't nod your head significantly so everybody else you knows you feel like that, but you can acknowledge that. Because I think we all find that from time to time, whether it's parenting, husbanding, working, playing, whatever it is, being part of the church family. You ever tried to love one another and failed? I mean, we all experience that in the reality of our lives, and it creates tension, and, and we've come into this moment of the disciples being in this struggle. And facing the reality of ministry, the realities of life, and, and they're in an argument, and they're in this conflict with the scribes. And I can only imagine, again, at this moment that the scribes are like, see, told you you guys are following the wrong guy. See, you guys really, Jesus really isn't that powerful because it didn't work. It's not working. And that's where we find him, and Jesus comes and engages that. And it's in the midst of this argument, as the disciples are arguing with the scribes, Jesus comes in and says, what are you guys arguing about? What's the big deal? And what happens? His father jumps up and says, man, I brought my son. He's got this problem, and I brought him to be healed, and your disciples couldn't heal him. Right? That's what we see in the text. And Jesus responds so kindly to them. Um, and it's interesting because I believe that part of in this part of this response, he's responding to the people that are watching, not just his disciples. I believe he's responding to, a, to the generation. He actually speaks of them as a group. And what does he say to them? And in verse 19, and, and he answered, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? I think there's times in my life where I felt like that's how Jesus would respond to me if he were actually talking to me about my behavior at that moment. If he were actually to be standing, let's just be honest, if he was sitting in the car with me, if he was walking through church with me on a Sunday morning, if he was responding to an employee or an employer or my bride or my boys, that he would probably look at me and say, well, faithless and twisted. Well, this, he doesn't have twisted. We're going to get to that. How long do I put up with you? How long am I stuck bearing with you? I, I know that's how I feel at times, but that would be his response. Look with me, if you would, at Philippians. I love, I love Paul's response to this. Verses uh, 12 through 18 
look at what what Paul says about this perverse and twisted generation. He's challenging the Philippian church to live in a way that is counter to this. It's 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 in opposition to to this generation that 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 we are in a, a, a faithless and twisted generation. It says this Philippians chapter two verse twelve. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the the sacrificial offerings of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I love what Paul does in that because, and I think it's what we're going to see is that Jesus is doing the same things with his disciples. He's reminding us that the, that the power, the desire to follow the Lord, to do the things that he's called us to do come from him. Paul's even encouraging the Philippian church to recognize that you don't even get that from yourself. It's not because of our good efforts to be faithful to Jesus that we successfully do. It's not because, of, because it comes from our innermost being. He says that it is God who works in you both to will and to do or to work for his good pleasure. And then he has the audacity to say, do nothing do, or do all things without grumbling or disputing. You may be innocent and blameless children so that we would be a light. How many, how many of that's been your experience in your Christian life? All things without, without uh, grumbling or disputing. Is that our standard protocol? And yet it's what we're called to do. Because we're the light. We reflect who Christ is. We, we are called to be that reflection. Jesus' response was to call out this generation to say your faith, you don't have faith. You're not, you're not seeing this the way that you should. You don't see me the way that you should. John 14, Jesus continues this dialogue and he's encouraging his disciples again to adjust their view just a little bit. John 14, starting in verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these 
will he do because I am going to the father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the father may be glorified in the son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Jesus is encouraging his disciples to recognize who he is, to see it and believe it, to allow that belief to affect how they live and how they function. Now, the challenge for us, and I think it's even it's going to be present here in the text as we follow through on uh, the, the rest of the text. The disciples, they, they were understanding some of this stuff that they, if they ask for things in Jesus' name, it'll happen, right? And, and I, we don't know exactly how they went about this process to deal with the demon, but I'm assuming they went through the process that Jesus gave them, quite possibly referencing his name and going through all of the steps. And yet the results were not the same as they were previously. Had to rattle them just a little bit, don't you think? As it should. We're going to get back to that in just a second. But I want to look at how Jesus responds to the Father. Because he's responding to two groups, and to each he has a, a little different response. What, what did the Father say to Jesus? It's right there in your Bible, so don't, don't, don't worry. I've got time. The first thing he says is, is, he's like, if you can. And Jesus seems to understand that he's asking that from a position of, of a, a little bit of like, uh, I kind of believe, sort of, like I've heard that it's possible because Jesus responds to that, right? And he goes, if you can, what, what kind of question is that to ask me? All things are possible if one for the one that believes. And I love that response. How many of you have gone to the Lord and said, oh, hey, Lord, would you consider my opinion? Is it possible that we could have a talk about this and maybe you would think about possibly considering looking at my ideas just for a second? We, we come apologetic almost to the throne. And I think that part of the reason is be, because we may come with a slightly wrong perspective or wrong focus. And, and I, I, God knows us. And so he, he, he does put up with us in this process. But the reality is, is that uh, when we get our eyes on the right thing, there's an, um, there's amazing freedom and there's amazing confidence that we can bring to our requests of the Lord. Um, and when we think about this idea of um, believing and, and putting our faith in Jesus, his disciples were really struggling with this, right? I mean, they were really struggling with, with the way Jesus was, was turning the, 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 the outcome of his ministry away from a successfully dominating and taking over the kingdom and establishing it. Now we looked at that last week. They're like, okay, so now, are, I mean, you're risen from the dead. There's and, uh, uh, you know, spiritual beings standing around you. We're having this cool conversation. There's a cloud. God's here now. Seemed like a good time. Jesus said, no, it's not my call. The disciples were struggling with this. Look at John chapter 20, verse 24. It wasn't just the father. It wasn't just others who were struggling to believe this. John 20, 24. This is Thomas, which we call him Doubting Thomas, which I don't think is really a fair nickname to give the poor guy. Let's just be honest. That's, that's, I don't think we should probably label him Doubting Thomas. We should probably say Thomas like us. 
2024, John. Now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my fingers in the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his sides, I will not believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord, my God. Because you have... uh, And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Clearly, there's a a deep implication of this idea of belief, right? And and yesterday, it was was just an an amazing time of interacting uh, at the funeral or the memorial service and testifying to Steve's faithfulness in this process. And he and I talked about John 3.16, and I just want to remind us of that again. John 3.16 through 18 says this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. This thing about belief keeps coming up. Now, what do you guys believe, really? What do you really believe? And I ask that because we keep talking about belief, and we've done, we have done illustrations. We did the chair thing. Do you guys remember the chair thing where I had the person close their eyes and sit down? They had to sit down without closing their eyes, and then we watched how different they sat down. Do you remember that? Well, like, not too many people are shaking their heads. All right, I need a volunteer. I wasn't going to do this. Come on up. I got one. I love this because he's seen me do this before, and he's really confident right now. <clears throat> I'm going to make lots of room. Okay, so what has to happen now, he's going to sit down and stand up a couple times. So we're going to watch you sit down. Oh, nice. You're trying to practice. That's awesome. Okay, so close your eyes. Um, who, somebody, who do you not know? Yeah, Tim, I'm going to have Tim come up and place the chair for you. All right, so Tim's going to place the chair. You know he's a fireman, right? Yeah, so he takes great pleasure in people's uh, suffering. It's, as a fireman, we actually, we don't like watching people suffer, but we like to be, it's actually a good day when somebody else is having a bad day, right? That's, it's the, yeah, it's job security. It's the weirdest thing you've ever seen. So you're going to close your eyes now. You can't open them again until, until we're done, okay? And why do you keep moving? Here, come back here. All right, just stand right there. Don't move. Now, Tim's going to place that chair. He's going to place it right behind you. You. Oh, no, behind him. Well, you could put it behind me, but that wouldn't help him at all. That, that's close enough, yeah. Okay, so thank you, Tim. Um, so what we're going to do now is you're going to sit down as quickly as you can and without opening your eyes, trusting that I would never do anything to hurt you. And that I would never have anybody engaged in an activity to hurt you in front of church and on video. Okay, you are such a great help. Thank you, brother. I love it. Did you guys see that? 
Now, when he sat down on the chair and he could see it, what did he believe? Now, I got to tell you guys, number one, for me to sit down on something with four little spindly thin legs with confidence is nuts. 20 years ago, not nearly as much faith. But if I miss that and hit the ground now, I'm suffering for a long time. It doesn't just go away like it used to. But did you see how much he struggled to find that chair? Even though, and I love this because he knows me. He's seen this before. And he was hunting for the seat, wasn't he? It's like, got to find that thing. Why? Because he couldn't see it. Our faith, we are like that with the Lord. We walk through our lives and we testify that we believe something. And yet when it comes down to the actual action, the activity of acting on that faith, we find ourselves hunting for something secure. Something that we know, something that we're comfortable with, which is why I think we like programs. We like religion. And yet Jesus says it's not about that. It's about having your eyes on me and trusting me that even if the chair isn't there, that I'm a good father, that I'm perfect in all my ways, and that whatever the results are of that moment will bring glory to my name and will be best for you for eternal purposes. Because he's interested in us not living our lives to condemnation, but living our lives to hope and eternal security. And if it means that we end up struggling or suffering or falling off the chair, but he gets our heart to heaven, I believe he would do it because he's good. So what do you believe? You know, the disciples were hit with this right in the face at this very moment. Because they're exercising their faith that had worked before. Look at this. I love this question. The disciples ask in private. I love that they do it in private. Don't you guys like that? They're like, hey, Jesus, what's up with that? But they didn't do it out in front of everybody. They were performing miracles in front of everybody, but they didn't want to. Okay. That would be me. Oh, Lord, please don't let me look like a fool today. You see the question that they asked? Why did we fail? Why didn't it work? What's the deal? And they had a right to ask that question. Look at Mark. Just go back to Mark chapter six, right? Mark chapter six, verses 12 and 13. Jesus is sending out his disciples. He's given them power. He's given them authority. Send them out to do the ministry. Mark chapter six, verse 12 says, so they went out and proclaimed that the people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil, many who were sick and healed them. It worked. And so they exercised that practice and it didn't work. And they came to Jesus and they said, why? Why didn't it work? I want to, you know, on a side note, I think it's super important that you and I go to the Lord and say, God, why, why am I a mess? Right? Why is this not working? I'm, I'm reading my Bible. I'm praying and it's dead. It's dry. What's, where are you? Why? It's okay to ask those questions. In fact, I think God at times is waiting for us to ask those questions. Look at what Paul or uh, what David says in Psalm 139. Psalm 139 verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. 
Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Now the profound part of that, who already knows your heart? God does. David wasn't inviting God to do that because God needed the invitation and God needed to know that he needed to check out David's heart. That wasn't what the point was. This was David saying, I recognize that I need you to do this. I need your investment. I am reminding myself that I need you. God doesn't need that reminder. You and I do. And that's what that is about. And I believe the disciples are, that's part of what God, Jesus is doing with them right now is saying, you guys need to get your eyes on me. You've got to get your eyes on me. We know this because if you look in Matthew, Matthew chapter 17, that they were focused on the wrong source. They had their eyes on the wrong stuff. Look at Matthew chapter 17, verses 14 through 19. We're actually, it's the same story, but just from a different perspective. It's, it's somebody else telling the story about what happened at this time in Matthew. Chapter, uh, chapter 17, verse 14. And when they came to the crowd, a man came to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son for he has seizures and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Now, the problem is, if we're not careful with this, you guys, there's, there's times where we can take this and, and we can say that, that, you know, if we had enough faith, we could move a mountain. That's not the point. Don't, don't get lost on that. What Jesus is pointing out to them is the vast uh, uh, vacancy of faith that's in their life. He says that with the faith the size of a mustard seed, you could move that mountain, and you guys can't do this. Like you, you're not even able to believe in me to cast out this demon. You don't have enough faith in who I am for, for this to work. And, and I believe part of the reason is uh, because they were looking at the wrong stuff. I, I honestly think that they, very much like me, they started to think that they had the power. I wonder if at times we as believers don't start thinking to ourselves that Jesus has given me the power to wield. And yet, I think the right view is that Jesus' power is given so that he can wield us. That he directs us. And that we respond to that. And when we have our eyes on him, when we're trusting him, when our focus is on him, when he's the sufficiency, when he's the authority, when he's the all-powerful, all-knowing God of the universe that the Bible says that he is, and we surrender to that, he's able to use us for supernatural things. Remember what James says? How we read this. I know we're going over this way too much. But I think it's important. James chapter one, or James chapter, well, we're not doing that. Everybody take a deep breath. Not doing that one today. 
James chapter 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. I think sometimes so often in our modern church, the reason we don't see God doing more is because we spend so much time asking for ourselves. Our focus is, about, is way too often about us. And so we say we believe in Jesus. We, we testify that, that he is the God of the Bible. And, and yet, it, doesn't it feel like at times we're running around like the disciples at this point, trying to do stuff for the Lord, and it's just dead? I believe that the solution and what Jesus is calling his disciples is uh, to, it, it was, you know, out of the Matthew passage, it's about faith in Christ. It's about trust. Jake was right not to sit down on that chair. You have, you have two firefighters setting up a chair for you in front of a crowd, especially one that thinks he's a comedian. That's, that's just dangerous. He was right. But brothers and sisters, for us to treat God like that, for us to treat Jesus that way, God oh, is dangerous. It is so, so dangerous. What's your focus this year? What's your focus this week? What was your focus when you came to church? Were you just trying to survive? Just get through the car ride? I, I grew up in a family, and I love my, my mom and dad, and, and we talk about this all the time. They were God's gift, perfect in all of his ways. My stepdad comes in. I was seven years old. I, I may have been the most angry seven-year-old uh, little kid in our little neighborhood anyway. And uh, we used to just try and survive the ride to church. I don't know what that was like for you guys. But man, mom and dad yelling at one another, kids being, I mean, I, I was angry. And so um, I remember one particular Sunday, they told me I had to sing. I, I had to get up front and sing a, a solo or something. They, somebody asked them and they volunteered me. And I'm like, uh-uh, I'm, I'm 11 years old. I don't have to do that if I don't want to. That's what I did. Usually the car ride was awesome to church. <laughs> and then it happened. It happened. The big one happened. Somebody in the church came up and was interacting with me about doing it. And I said no. And my, my mom and dad said yes. And it happened. Like I gave the look of rebellion. They gave the look of you're dead when we get outside of the church. Because we let it out that we were a normal family and had problems. And you don't do that in the church. Oh, by the way, did we warn you guys we turned off the you look like Jesus filter when you came in? I don't, we should probably put that out front somewhere. You can't, you don't walk in and become like Jesus when you come here. We're normal people. We live in this world with tons of distractions, tons of challenges and difficulties. And in the midst of that, our, our king, our Messiah is saying, trust me. I've got your best in mind. 
And I guarantee you his best for us will not look like our best. His best for us will not look like yours and my idea of best. Because if I did my best, I would be comfortable and I would be going to hell happy. In my comfort. I drive the cars I'd want and have the job I want. I would, I would be making all of these expect, expectations on Jesus and none of them would be worried about my soul. They would be worried about right now and comfort. And yet Jesus says, I'm in this for more than that. Get your eyes on me. His disciples were trying to do their ministry, but at some point in this process, and we're going to see it exposed more and more, their hearts were on them. Their idea was that it was about them and that it was about their position. It was about their life. It was about prestige. And Jesus was redirecting them to say, no, 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 no. This is about me. And if you will trust me, and if you will follow me, the results will be supernatural. It may cost you your life. In fact, pretty much guaranteed. It will cost you your life to follow Jesus. What are your eyes on this week? I want to encourage you that Jesus is calling each of us. He's calling each of us to say, follow me. Follow me. You know, we uh, had a saying back in Aeneas Valley, and, you know, when you're standing in the tent and trying to get the heat up over 30, it has a little bit more grit and grind to it when you say not easy, but good, right? Um, it just makes it a little bit more tangible when you can't play your guitar because your fingers are frozen. Not easy, but good. God did not call us. Jesus hasn't called us to an easy life. He, hasn't, he didn't call his disciples to it. He didn't call you and me to it. If any of you find easy, come and talk to me. We'll try and mess it up. We got, we got to get our eyes on the Lord. We have got to get our eyes on the Lord. I don't know how many of you are distracted by politics or, or cultural things that are happening or vehicle issues or family life issues or medical issues. All of those things are real. Uh, and I do not want to downplay the significance of those moments because they're real. They hit each of us and they hit us each differently. But the hope that we have, it was one of the things that so deeply impacted me. This last Monday, I got, Don and I got to go and sit with Steve Hill before he, before he went home to see the Lord. And we sat in that hospital room and we watched him cry because he loved his kids and he loved his family. And then we watched him with joy in his face talk about going home. Going home. That comes from a relationship and, a, and, a, and an understanding of who Jesus is that's bigger than the physical life. That's bigger than the physical pain that he was in. And the, the, the physical suffering and the loss that he was expecting that he knew he was leaving. It's bigger than that. And you know the beauty of it is that Part of what Candy and I got to interact with over the, that week was that she had joy in the departure. And you know what the oddest part was? She felt guilty about it at times. She felt guilty because her husband was, was safe. He was free. 
He could run again. He was in the presence of his Lord. And she experienced joy. It's what he's inviting us into. I want to encourage you, if right now your view is is stuck on something that is earthly and human and right in front of you, I would encourage you to cry out like the Father did. Lord Jesus, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. Jesus responds to those kind of prayers. He responds to that kind of desperate dependency on him. And I believe it's what he wants from us. It's what he's calling me to. And I believe that there's a beautiful outcome that we may not see until glory. But that's the promise. Father, help us to change our eyes, change our view. God, I pray that you would help us to to learn that it's not about us. Whatever humbling, (sighs) painful experience that you need to take us through to get our eyes off of us and to get them onto you. God, we want to surrender. We want to be your people. We want to be your light. As this father cried out, Lord, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. To God be the glory for all things that happen. Let us be a church that extols your name, that lives in obedience, that that suffers with joy. Because we have an eternal promise that is outside of time and outside of all physical and and present suffering and difficulty. And Lord Jesus, you have promised a home and a place, a presence, a dwelling place of God to be with man. What hope and joy there is in that. And yet we would forfeit that. We would would compromise on that for a few moments of comfort here on this earth. God, I pray you'd undo our hearts. That when we face our death, we could look up and smile and say, God, I'm coming home. Help me in my unbelief. Amen.